Thanks, Travis. That was awesome. I enjoyed that so much. I felt kind of irresponsible. Two years ago, we kind of offered you the job, and you said yes. And then I said, I'm out of here. <laughs> I think it went something like that, because you guys hadn't even arrived before we were in Vancouver again. Bad of me, wasn't it? But it's all worked out good, and there's a side of them I could see this morning that I didn't even know you had. I mean, we would have offered you a job even sooner if we knew you could do that. <laughs> but uh, good to be back with you guys. Um, some of you were here two years ago when we got called up front, like you guys do, you know, to pick on people when they, they leave, right, Nicole? And, um, and uh, I was just kind of like my normal mode, right? Okay, I'm supposed to go up front now, boom, 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 boom. And I left Barb in the dust way at the back of the auditorium. She had kind of a meltdown. She did not want to leave this church at all. And so uh, anyway, that's kind of how that went. Very dramatic exit. And um, it's been good the last couple of years to keep the connections alive. A lot of you have been over in Vancouver. We've had you in our home. And um, Daniel in particular, Daniel, as he's been doing his college program over there at Regent, has been staying with us in every week when he comes over he brings cookies which he claims to have made the night before and I think these get taped right Uh, can I talk to Kate Kate if you're listening to this you probably won't but if you do I know that you made the cookies because they were really good and uh, and I know you probably made more than the two cookies Daniel actually gave us but Anyway, we used to get together on uh, Tuesday nights, and we would eat cookies and watch The Voice, and Daniel would pick exactly who was going to win and who the judges would like because he's got such a great ear for music. And uh, the cookies made up for getting beat up uh, in that game. But anyway, it's good to be back. It really is. And um, glad, Travis, that you asked me to share the Word of God with you guys. I had understood from Daniel that you were doing this whole series on the story, which I didn't know a lot about until he started telling me about it. And so this idea of kind of doing a book of the Bible at a time per week, right, pretty well. And uh, doing it from the beginning, chronologically all the way through. And then you're stuck with the problem, what do you do with these kind of non-historically grounded books like the wisdom literature and where do you put those? So I guess you guys decided to do them at the end. So I'd already heard about that part. And um, so when you asked me to speak, I was kind of thinking I was going to do something on the wisdom literature. And uh, I was just hoping that it wasn't going to be Song of Solomon. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't know you that well, so I wouldn't really have put that past you. Uh, um, but thankfully, you had mercy on me, and I got to do Proverbs instead. So that's our agenda for this morning. If you haven't read Song of Solomon, by the way, you really should do it because, um, and if you don't, you're not in on the joke, it's basically a love poem, and it is um, descriptive, if I can use that word. <laughs> I'm not sure what else. Is that a tactful word to use? It's kind of uh, explicit would be the word people usually toss around today, but it's really uh, amazing to talk about romantic love in a way that's not cheap and tawdry and so on like we're used to in our culture most of the time. And uh, so if you haven't read that book, you go ahead, but that doesn't mean I'm ready to preach on it. I'm, uh, I'm going to just stay with my task, which is to talk about Proverbs this morning. And um, I'm going to just focus on one part of Proverbs. Um, you invited all the children to listen. I'm not sure if that was a great idea, as you're going to see in just a minute or two. This is a G-rated church, but this message is kind of, uh, I'll, I'll use language that um, doesn't cross any lines. But anyway, we're going to talk about some um, 
things that could be talked in ways that aren't so pleasant, I suppose. You know that Proverbs has in its target audience, you could see that from the words that Dan read earlier, kind of a whole broad spectrum. If you're wise, you know, you'll get something out of this book. If you're foolish, you'll get something out of this book. If you are a woman, you'll get something out of this book. A man, you will. If you're young or you're old, no matter what stage of life or other descriptor of your life you can think of, you'll get something out of Proverbs. But you probably noticed in the text that the main audience of Proverbs is actually young men. And it said that in that, it said young people, I believe, up there. I don't know if that was a more generous translation, but often the Proverbs writer will say, um, my son, listen, and so on, right? Over and over again, it does. So it's not exclusively directed toward young men, but it has kind of a target audience of young men in mind, and then all the rest of us who aren't young men anymore or ever um, as well. So what I want to do is focus in on Proverbs' message to young men, and that sounds like it's going to be boring to all the ladies in the audience until you remember that Proverbs is extremely practical. I think it's the most practical book in the whole Bible to me by a mile, right? just talks about ordinary aspects of your life and how to be wise in those aspects of your life. It talks about work. It talks about your friendships. It talks about your family life. It talks about uh, your money and, and so on and so forth, right? All the ordinary things that we experience every week, every day in our real lives, Proverbs has got something to say about that part of your life. But if Proverbs is going to be really practical and it's going to be targeted at young men, you know it's going to have to deal with a message about girls, right? Because we all know that most of the time, young men are thinking about girls. They, they, sometimes they think about sports. Sometimes they even think about their careers. But I was a young guy, and I know for sure guys mostly are thinking about girls. So it shouldn't surprise us that Proverbs has got something to say to young men about girls because it's a practical book after all, right? And so that's what I want to focus in on this morning. And it is rather interesting what it has to say. Um, and we're not going to be able to cover all of it by any means, but we'll kind of get the gist of it. And before, and it has a lot of things to say to young men about women and how you should interact with them. Lots of positive things. Uh, it's all over the map, basically, right? But the one thing that it does at the beginning of the book is it kind of lays a fundamental ground rule, if I can use that word, when it comes to men and women. And it goes something like this. It's not very complicated, actually. Don't mess around with other women. <laughs> it's about that simple. I hope that wasn't too uh, like explicit. But anyway, you know, you know where I was going now, right? So don't mess around with other women. And the Proverbs writer you'd think he had nothing else on his mind for chunks of this book, I'll tell you. Because in chapter 5, I mean, it is all about that. And he says what I just said a hundred different ways in one chapter, and there's nothing else in that chapter except a message that goes like, don't mess around with other women, other women who aren't your wife. That's what I'm talking about. Half of chapter 6, don't mess around with other women. All of chapter 7, don't mess around with other women. And he says it in a hundred different ways, but it's all the same message. Don't mess around with other women. Am I clear? Um, and I find that kind of intriguing. Like, are we thick? <laughs> we kind of are on this particular topic, aren't we? 
So young men thinking about this a lot and being kind of thick-headed like we can be and a little foolish when it comes to this topic. Proverbs just says, don't mess around with other women. And it says it in so many different ways. Now, there is a little bit of nuance here. There's two kind of basic observations he makes on this topic. One, and this is mainly in chapter 5, 6, and 7, he says, you know, it's really easy to get fooled when it comes to this topic. You, you know, an ordinary smart guy who's thinking straight about all kinds of aspects of his life can look like a real fool and, and be duped on this particular topic very, very easily. And so that's kind of one of his messages here that he emphasizes a lot in these chapters. But the second one, and I guess it kind of follows out of that, is that he, he goes on about how much you're going to regret it if you don't listen to the first thing I just said. How much your life is going to turn into a disaster if you mess around with other women and you don't listen to what I have to say about that. And he goes on and on about this, and, and he says it in so many ways. Um, chapter 6, I'll just read a few snapshots. A certain kind of woman is going to reduce you to a loaf of bread. That's flattering, isn't it? <laughs> a loaf of bread, right? You think she's impressed with you. <laughs> you have a wonderful personality, an even better body, or whatever, right? She, she says things about you that maybe your wife doesn't appreciate anymore. You, wonderful man, you. And, and, and the Proverbs writer says, she's going to reduce you to a loaf of bread, buddy. <laughs> Uh, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? That doesn't sound pleasant. Nope. Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? Never tried it, but it doesn't sound fun to me. Verse 33 of chapter 6, his shame will never be wiped away. He'll be so embarrassed for a long time. Verse 34, you're also going to have to deal with the husband. <laughs> he's going to be mad. So he's going to be furious. He's going to take revenge. And in that world, that didn't mean going to court. <laughs> it was kind of like go after the guy, right? And uh, so you're going to have to deal with the husband. Even today, you might have to deal with the husband outside of court. Not pleasant idea. Chapter 7, it kind of gets worse. It's uh, like an ox going to slaughter. Ooh, pleasant thought. <laughs> this is going to be fun, isn't it? I'm like an ox going to slaughter. It's going to cost him his life, verse 23. Verse 27, it's like walking down a highway to a grave, leading down to the chambers of death. <laughs> I don't know, I've never been there, but that doesn't sound pleasant at all to me. The chambers of death. And so this, the author goes on and on about this. Don't mess around with other women because if you do, this is what your life is going to be look is going to look like. I don't know if he could say it any more forcefully, any more dramatically than what you read in these chapters. And um, it, it's interesting to me that today I would say I can't imagine a more unpopular message than that. Right? I've been quite close to this whole goings-on at uh, Trinity Western University. And you might have heard that they've been approved for a law school. And uh, you know that Trinity Western, if you're a student or faculty member or staff, you have to sign up for this covenant. And the covenant basically says, 
I won't mess around with other women. I'm basically no sex outside of marriage. That's what it says. And um, pretty old-fashioned thinking, I suppose, a lot of people think. And so I'm telling you, people are really violently upset about this. Seriously upset. It went to a vote in uh, the Law Society of BC, about 10,000 lawyers in the province, 5,000 cared to vote. 5,000 of the, 4,000, sorry, voted to tell the Law Society directors to not accept members who are graduates from Trinity Western's law school as able to practice law in the province, and a 1,000 voted against that. And the hostility in reading some of these emails and uh, articles and so on was pretty, to my mind, breathtaking, right? All these people are really saying is we're a private institution. You want to come here. This is what we believe in. We're just promising to honor our marriage vows not very <laughs> threatening, you wouldn't have thought, but people are really upset about this, right? And some people come to this kind of a text, and they're more sophisticated in their criticisms. These other people are really just saying, don't dare tell us what to do with our life, right? We'll do what we want. But some people are more sophisticated, and they say things like, you know, the Proverbs writer and other texts in the New Testament like this. They're just being written from the standpoint of men who can't control themselves And instead of taking responsibility, they're blaming it on the the woman, right? The temptress and things like that. Very sophisticated arguments. I've always noticed that people who want to discredit the Bible are actually, that's when people are at their smartest, right? Very clever. When they're trying to disagree with something the Bible kind of teaches plainly. And uh, so it just tells me we're living in a society that has no time for this message whatsoever. And and, uh, so I'm not going to argue with these people. They're very smart, some of them won't even try. You don't want to listen to an argument right in front of you here on sermon time or whatever, but I will do this. I'll tell you what I've seen with my own eyes in my lifetime. And ever since I was pretty young guys, young as some of these guys sitting here in the audience, I've had a chance to watch some of this up close when people haven't listened to the Proverbs writer when he says, don't mess around with other women. And I've seen some of it in my own family. It wasn't fun to watch. It wasn't fun to be part of at all seen it in other people. I've had a front row seat, even though it wasn't in my family, and watch people basically go against this wisdom and their lives basically crumble and fall apart and become poor, become upset, and ruin the lives of other people all around them uh, who they loved, right, often and cared for. I saw it one time in Kamloops as a young guy. I think I was probably about 18. And the preacher was up there with his, with his young family. I think he had four kids and, and his wife. Um, and they came up to speak and to teach and so forth up in Kamloops in the interior of B.C. And uh, he was a good man. I know he was a good man. And he really wanted to do right. And uh, he loved God and he loved people. He was a good person. He really was. I liked the guy a lot. And after a couple of years of ministry, he just up and announced uh, one day that he'd had enough. And uh, that was it. They were going back to Texas. And so he hired a moving van. He packed all his household belongings inside the van, gave the keys to his wife and said, you know, you drive it back, put the kids in there with her. And he said, I just got to take care of a few other things here in town. I'll jump in the car and I'll be after. uh, I'll follow you and catch up to you along the way. And instead, he uh, invited one of the other ladies in the congregation to get in the car with him later that day. And they drove straight north instead of south. And they were, as far as I know, never heard from again. 
And I'm just asking, like, what, what causes a guy to do something like that? Right? He, I know he loved his kids, but he lost it. Like, he lost it big time, right? And, I, and I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, but my sense is that what happens, at least to some guys, is that, you know, you kind of grind it out. It's not easy to be a dad. It's not easy to be a husband. And, and sometimes we take all this responsibility on our shoulders. And year after year, you know, we go to work. We get up and we go to work and we, we do our best. And, and uh, we come home and we go to sleep and we get up the next day and we do it again. And years later, you know, we haven't achieved what we wanted to in our lives. We we're not as important as we maybe wished we would have been when we were younger. We're not as successful maybe as we wished we would have been. And, and uh, in that space, what I've seen happen is that guys sometimes start to feel a little sorry for themselves. I'm not as appreciated as I ought to be by my wife and you know, losing perspective on how much of the burden she's borne all through those grinding years as well because it's not easy. And then when feeling sorry for himself and self-pity enters into the equation, it is a very short step to justifying things that in a clear mind you would never do. And so I think that's the genesis of this kind of problem for some guys, not everybody, I don't mean to say. And I I hope you don't, I'm not standing up here before you this morning kind of uh, feeling all smug about myself or anything like that. I'm not judging guys that this has happened to him really not and god's grace is way bigger than any mistake we can make in our lives even this kind of mistake and it'll overcome all the shame and it can overcome all the hurt it can all be made right again right so i'm not saying uh this is not a grim message in that sense but proverbs isn't about all those other things about god's grace and proverbs is about keeping you out of trouble in the first place right? It's a simple message. Don't mess around with other women or your life is going to look pretty bad. That's what it says. So that's kind of the start of uh, Proverbs there, chapter after chapter. And I don't know about you, but I can only take so many happy thoughts in one day and then I just have to kind of move on. So, uh, so we come out of chapter seven and all this bam, 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 you know, kind of negativity almost. And, uh, we emerge into the clear light of chapter 8, and this is when we get these words of wisdom on every aspect of our life. The audience kind of broadens out instead of just talking to guys about women. And, uh, and that goes on all the way till the end of the book almost, really, until, I mean, it gets, it, once in a while, we'll talk about your relationship to women as well in chapters 8 all the way through 30, but not very much until you get to the end, chapter 31, and then we are reminded that the audience is actually still, and always has been, primarily young men. And so in chapter 31, verse 1, the sayings of King Lemuel. King Lemuel, who's, who's that? Well, whoever it is, I don't know anything about the guy. He's not mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, to my knowledge. May not have even been a Jew. I don't know about that. Sorry, Travis, didn't do my homework. But um, all I know is he's not King Solomon, right? And... Uh, if, if you're kind of tired by the time you've hit chapter 8 of listening to King Solomon tell you about how you shouldn't mess around with other women after he had, how many wives was it on top of his first one? 730-something or other. And then, you know, if that wasn't enough, you know, then uh, another, what, 300-something concubines. And it's like, 
you're telling me. <laughs> anyway, maybe he wrote this before. Maybe, whatever. I'm not going to. Yeah, that's right. It wasn't quite a thousand, but it was close. <laughs> Same deal. You're right. You're right. So anyway, it's good to have a change of voice, right? I can listen to somebody else on this, but Solomon, I'm kind of tired of listening to you telling me about other women. So chapter 31, now we got a change of voice, and it's King Lemuel. But as we've been saying all along, all along, if you're talking uh, to young men, you've got to kind of have in your mind women because they're thinking about women, right? And sure enough, here we go. These are sayings of King Lemuel, but it's an oracle that his mother taught him, it says in verse 1. This really is her message given to her son. Now, if that sounds kind of weird, you're thinking King Charles, holds, not king, but prince, right? How old is he now? 65-ish or something like that, probably. And you're thinking about his mom, maybe in this scenario, not being queen and telling him as king what to do, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. That's really not what's going on. In the ancient world, kings uh, died early. They went to battle. They were killed. They died of disease or they were ambushed in the palace or whatever, right? A lot of guys died early as kings. And so because of the way it worked, of course, their son, the oldest, would take over as king. And he might be 14 years old. That's probably the scenario here. Make sense? And so his mom, before, and, he, and he's not making decisions as king. He's not saying, as a 14-year-old, let's go conquer the Babylonians or whatever. There are other people behind him making these decisions. Maybe even his mom is part of the kind of the regent council or whatever. But, um, but there is one decision he's going to make, probably his first decision as king, and maybe the most important that he'll ever make, and that is who's going to be his wife, right? And so she's got something to say about that to this young guy. And so she says, oh, my son, in verse 2, oh, son, son of my womb, I guess that's to keep the guilt on him a little bit there, oh, son of my vows, don't spend your strength on women, your vigor on those who ruin kings. Don't mess around with other women. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> and so she's got something to say, and it's the same topic. And then you go down, and then talks about drinking and carousing. I mean, these are things dumb boys do, right? And, uh, and instead of those kind of things, you ought to be thinking about speaking up for people who can't speak for themselves. Like, get your mind on more important things that you're called to as king. But then she addresses who's going to be your wife, starting in verse 10. So she gave him a lovely poem or gave him the ideas that became a poem that he wrote. Hard to say which happened. And you know this poem really well. If we had time, we would read it, but we don't. A wife of noble character who can find she's worth far more than rubies. We usually do this one on Mother's Day, right? And I'm late. But um, it's a beautiful poem. And, and we're not, we don't have time to get into all the details, but I want to tell you two things about the poem quickly. One is that it's an acrostic poem. You know what an acrostic is, right? A, B, C, and every stanza or verse starts with a new letter in the Hebrew alphabet, gimel, and then I run out. I can't remember anymore. And uh, so each of these words in the Hebrew poem started with a, a, a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, right? And, uh, and that kind of tells you, because that's an aid to memory, that she wanted him to remember this stuff. Doesn't it make sense? It's worth remembering. So I picture King Lemuel, you know, dating the girls of the kingdom and going alphabet, gimel, gimel. Her arms are strong for her tasks. Show me your arms. <laughs> I don't know. It didn't work like that, I'm sure. But the idea is, you know, have this in mind as you start courting these women, right? 
is the idea, I think, that we can infer from this idea that it's an acrostic poem. But the second thing is it is in chiastic form. And I hesitate to use that word, but Travis gave it to me in some of the background, so I'm blaming you, Travis. I hate using big words on things that are supposed to be beautiful because it kind of ruins it, doesn't it? But uh, a chiastic poem, and it's also a form of, um, or a device, a literary device that was used not just in poems, but also in ordinary narrative literature. It's basically the idea that you start out with one thought and then another and then another until you get to the middle of your thoughts, your story or your poem. And then what you do as you're backing out from the center, you address the thing that was next to last again in slightly different words than the thing that was before that. And you work your way all the way back to the beginning of the poem And what that allows the the writer to do is plant an idea right in the center of the poem, which is the central idea of the poem. And so you know you've encountered the main idea when you start to encounter the repetition on the backside of the narrative or the poem. Does that make sense? And then what you do is you listen to the ideas as they're repeated in the back half of the poem with the central idea in your mind right, as your interpretive uh, focus, so to speak. Let, let me show you. I, I could tell. It's like, what is he talking about? All right. Look at verse uh, 11. Her husband has full confidence in her. This is an idea that gets repeated on the back half of the story, but not almost till the very end, right, because of how it goes parallel as you get deeper and back out again. So look in verse 28. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. So same idea, full confidence in her, praises her. Kind of slightly different, but really the same idea, expressed just a little differently. Make sense? Go in a little bit further, verse 13. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. And then way back down, parallel to that, in verse 27, she doesn't eat the bread of idleness, Right? And so you get this idea of, of, um, uh, of, of working hard, and it's repeated at the beginning, more or less, and at the end. And then if we go deeper in, verse 21, she talks, or this talks about how all of the family members are clothed with scarlet. And then just a little bit past the center, it repeats that idea in slightly different words. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchant with sashes. So it's about clothing. Do you see how this works? Same ideas, same ideas, same ideas. Center, the center helps you interpret the whole thing. So the big question becomes, what's at the center of this poem? Aren't you interested to know? Well, look at verse 23. Here it is. And this reminds us, it's been all about the woman, this poem, but it's actually targeted to the young man who's thinking about getting one, (laughs) finding finding a wife. Her husband is respected at the city gate. Ooh, that sounds good. Where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. That's like saying in modern terms, um, her husband sits on the board of directors of several influential local companies, has a seat on the BC Supreme Court, and um, what else? That kind of thing. You know what I mean? This is a heavy hitter. This is a guy, when, he's, when he talks, people listen. He's respected by the whole community. 
And right there at the beginning of the poem, you have this other thing that guys think about almost as much as women, which is how do they become important? How do they become respected in their community? And you have that wonderful vision right at the center of the poem, and the message of the whole poem then becomes what? Clearly, if you want to be respected in this way by your community, you better get one of these (laughs) kind of women because that's going to have more effect on how this turns out for you than how long you go to school or how much money you make or whatever else you want to talk about that you might think gets you there. It's that woman, right? That's the message of this poem to the young man who's the target audience. And it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful message. And I find it interesting, you know, to think then about, okay, what kind of woman are we talking about? And read the poem that way. That's going to help a young guy achieve this kind of vision, in a sense. And uh, the interesting thing is that the most guys' shortlist of beauty and uh, that certain thing, we'll call it charm, about a member of the opposite sex that so fascinates us about a woman, if we're a guy, um, you know, King Lemuel's mom doesn't ignore she doesn't. She's too much of a realist. And, and God made women beautiful, and God made guys like that. And so she doesn't ignore it and say it's not important. But I love how she addresses it. It's kind of right at the end of the poem. And she says, verse 30, charm is deceptive. So what you find fascinating could be more to the story underneath in terms of character, right? And beauty is fleeting. She kind of puts it in perspective. It's not that beauty is not important. God made us this way after all, right? It's a wonderful thing. It's a thing to be celebrated. You know, without that, I mean, you know, who'd get married? Probably not very many. But it belongs to a season of life. That's when it's particularly important. And as time goes on, there's bigger fresh fresh to fry. (laughs) It's not being taped, surely. There's bigger fish to fry. There's more important things, right, than just kind of uh, looks because that doesn't absorb all of your life for all of your your married days. And she recognizes that. So she deals with it in a very delicate and wise way that a young guy could probably hear. Ah, it's important, but maybe it shouldn't be, you know, my first three items and then that's the end of my list for finding a wife. Maybe it should be on the list, but not everything, right? That's how she deals with it. Okay, well, that's the negative side. It's not just about that. What's the positive side? If you look at this list, there is one thing that stands out by far more than anything else. It was really clear because it's repeated over and over and over again. If you haven't noticed that that's what the Proverbs writers like to do, beat you over the head until it's just like my wife, right? When she's trying to communicate with me, if I don't get it the first or third or fifth time, just keep going. And uh, so that's what he does. And the thing that he talks about the woman uh, that's more important than anything else, this woman of noble character, is that she's a hard worker. Isn't that kind of weird? Is that what you expected? She's a hard worker. And he says in a million different ways. Verse uh, 13, she works with eager hands. She gets up while it's still dark. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She doesn't eat the bread of idleness, and I could go on with more. She's a hard worker. She's engaged in helping this family move ahead and do well. And uh, she doesn't hold back. Got a lot of get up and go, this woman. And not only that, but the scope of the work that she includes in, in the scope of her household responsibilities is extremely broad. When you look at verse 27, 
It talks about she watches over the affairs of her household. And when we read that word, we kind of think of household, right, in our our modern-day sense. So we're thinking about mom and dad, we're thinking about the kids, maybe the dog or the gerbil or whatever, right? But that's kind of the extent of it. And you might even read this whole poem in kind of 1950s lenses or 60s or whatever and think about dad getting up in the morning and going to work, the woman staying home, raising the kids, making the meals, cleaning the house, and all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of what you think and this poem is about. It's not. It's not at all. I don't know. I mean, I get why we read the Bible like this, but I wish we just... Bad. Don't do it. Slow down. Read it for what it says, not for what you wish it would say. And this idea of household in the ancient world was way bigger than what we just talked about. It was way bigger. For starters... Uh, It would include, often, as you know, and I know you you already know this, but, you know, maybe the grandparents and maybe some orphans because people died young and they had to go somewhere, right? And so it would often include other family members' kids. It would include, except in the very poorest of households, usually servants or slaves, not so much in Israel but elsewhere. Um, And it would include, it would have the idea, for example, Caesar's household. Do you remember that term used in the New Testament? referring to Paul preaching to Caesar's household and stuff in Philippians. It uses the word household. What it's really talking about is the entire Roman administrative bureaucracy. And it uses the term Caesar's household, right? Because the whole thing is associated with that one person. Household was like that in the ancient world. So we're not just talking about kind of what you did in the confines of your own home and then you went out on your job to earn some cash or whatever. It was every, the whole enterprise of the household. If you own land, it had to do with that, right? If you had a little business, you were making clothes like this woman from your house, it included that. It included all the assets of the household. They didn't think about it like I've got a business over here kind of separate from my household. That business was pulled right in, was part of the way you thought about your household. And look at what this woman did in terms of this household in that sense. Um, Where is it? 16. She considers a field. She considers a field and buys it. Buys it. She buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Where else? Verse 18, her trading is profitable. 24, she makes linen garments and sells them, supplies the merchants with sashes and so on. You see a woman who's basically doing everything that a modern woman does, right? And maybe more in some ways because she's running a business, multiple businesses, orchards, clothing manufacturing, and all kinds of stuff. Kind of amazing when you think about it. And this is honored in this text in a way that um, is tied back to a young man and his vision for how important he wants to be in the community. Get a woman like that is what it says. And if you think that this poem is just kind of that, a poem, not really grounded in reality, that the real reality was in Jewish households that, you know, the men were in charge and women didn't do anything except start the fire and boil the water or whatever, uh, No, it wasn't like that. Maybe in some households, right? But it it wasn't necessarily like that at all. Uh, You remember the Dead Sea Scrolls found in 1947, right? On the side of uh, the western, northwestern side of the uh, Dead Sea in those caves. Fifteen years after that, there was another stash of goods found in the southwest side of the Dead Sea. 
and they found jewelry and uh, a jewelry box and bowls and knives and a frying pan and mirrors and clothing and sandals and jugs. And they also found a stash of 35 papyrus documents belonging to a woman, a Jewish woman, by the name of Babatha. And you read these scrolls and you see every major transaction of her life. You see her marriage contract from her first husband who died. She got married again. You see her second marriage contract. You see her bringing in orphans into her family like I talked about earlier. You see that she owned um, date palm orchards, houses at various times, courtyards, She took out loans. She made deposits. She entered into contracts. She appeared before Jewish and Roman officials to settle and transact her business. I mean, it's like we've got this glimpse into a real, live, worthy woman of Proverbs 31, right? She's a real person. You can see it there in the cave. It's not in the cave anymore, of course. And so that tells us we're not just dealing with a poem here, we're dealing with real life. And this was something that, was, that went on in Israel, in ancient Israel, and it was celebrated. Now, in the modern context, don't get me wrong, uh, this doesn't mean that you've know you got to do exactly this to be pleasing to God. That's not the point of reading texts like this. What it's saying here is that these are things that are honored by God and by the writers and uh, to be celebrated and to be valued and to be on the list of any young man looking for a woman to marry. That's the, the message of this chapter 31, I would say, primarily. Now, um, I'm going to wrap, basically, at this point and just point out what I would say is kind of the sum of this whole message in Proverbs. I think the bottom line here this morning is that much of a man's life and the way his life turns out is going to depend on very much how he interacts with the women of his life, right? How he interacts with that one woman who's his wife and all the others who aren't. Don't get the two mixed up. There you go. Kind of simple. Thanks for your attention.